Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, right, guys. Today, I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Chase Replogle. He is a pastor of Bent Oak Church in Ozark, Missouri. He's also a writer and a podcaster, and he is the author of a new book that came out this year. It was actually released back in March. It's called The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Now, the majority of what we talk about today really hinges on a lot of the stuff in this book, but you should look at this conversation today as a good example of if you don't really understand somebody's point, or even if you vehemently disagree with their worldview or their point or particular issue, there is a way to go into that conversation to where you can find a better understanding. Not necessarily that you'll end up agreeing with the person, but find a better understanding of where they're coming from. Because as I was reading through this book, I was like, even writing in the margins, like, man, I don't really get this. Like, am I just too distracted? Am I reading this when I'm too tired? There were a lot of things that just were not landing with me. So a lot of time in this podcast, I was able to get into some of that subject matter and it really, really helped me understand what he was going with. But also we spent a lot of time talking about meekness, kind of how Jordan Peterson has helped the modern Christian church understand the word meekness better and how he's kind of turned that around. We talked about rites of passage and how important that is. I even got a little choked up towards the end with my own answer, but he gave an answer towards the end. I think it was the second to last question that I thought was fantastic. And it was the difference between basically how certain people read the Bible and go to church and what they expect versus what they should do and what they should expect. So I just want to tee it up like that. I want to make sure I leave a little meat on the bone so you guys can check that out. But without further ado, let's get into it. Chase Replogo, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. Did I nail the last name? Because I've, I've been practicing for all of 15 seconds. Did I Look, did I, I would get say it? Any, anything that starts with an R is close enough, so I think it counts. Yeah. Well, I went to school with a guy with the last name Paholski, and it was like super <laughs> Polish, and like none of those letters made sense with how he pronounced it, so it's not quite that bad. But in terms of starting out, in terms of introduction, if you will, I don't like starting too broad, but we at least need to start somewhat broad. You're a pastor. Why in the world did you become a pastor? Yeah, well, it wasn't my original plan. I thought I was going to law school. My dad's a 35-year state trooper, served for a long time, crime scene investigator. My brother uh, recently just got out of the Marine Corps as a captain, so I was sort of the odd one out in my family deciding to go the path of ministry, but I, I felt God's call asking me to do this work, and, and that's been confirmed in so many ways, and so I'm really grateful for an opportunity just to pastor a congregation and be in people's lives and open up scripture every week with them. Well, that was a very cute PC answer, but I want to know about the crappy stuff. What is the worst part about being a pastor? Because there are, you know, different people kind of get into pastoral work and then they end up going into business. You don't really see that the opposite way. I had Dale Partridge on not that long ago and he said the same thing. He went from business to pastoral work. So like it's got to suck sometimes, doesn't it? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, right now is a really hard time to be a pastor, if you want to be honest, because right. uh, I'll say to my wife, when do I get to have an opinion? You know, everybody has opinions right now about everything we're facing. And uh, a part of being a pastor is trying to hold together a group of people, trying to speak truth and be honest in a time that's really complicated, but recognizing my job as a pastor is not just to fix everyone. My not, job's not to let people walk in and all of a sudden say, hey, I know what your problem is. Here's how you need to fix it. I don't always know how to fix some of the problems people face. My job as a pastor is to walk in and say, well, what might God be doing in this situation? And sometimes that's in really complicated and messy situations. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. So a lot of being a pastor is just walking with people and trying to figure out What's bigger than you in your life? What's going on that you've overlooked? What are the things that God might be doing or teaching you right now that might not be easy, that might be complicated, but could actually be a path forward to something better? So um, one of my favorite pastors says a pastor's job is just to say God, <laughs> just just to draw people's attention to something beyond themselves, what God might be doing. So with that in mind, uh, th this is going to be coming out, you know, probably a couple months after we talk, but we're sitting right in the middle of a slew of, in my opinion, amazing Supreme Court decisions. One of those being the overturning of Roe v. Wade. There's been a yeah, couple of other decisions that have been, you know, basically a a loud, full throated support for religious liberty in this country. One in yep. New York, and one with a a football coach. And I'll, I'll talk about that and on the show. And you know. Then, then we're right in the middle of Pride Month, and it's like if you're a pastor that doesn't fly, a, a, you know, a rainbow flag outside your church, and all of a sudden you're not just bigoted, but you're hateful, and you don't you don't understand the gospel, you don't understand love, but let some secular humanist tell you what that's like. How do you traverse that? As a pastor, because I got to be honest, one of my biggest gripes with pastors, especially megachurch pastors, is they won't touch any of the hot button issues because they're in the middle of the growth model. And if you're an entrepreneur in the middle of growth model, you don't want to do anything that's going to keep people from filling your coffers, keep people from filling the seats. But the flock, the people that you're purported to lead uh, through these situations, they leave your church like feeling motivated, but then they have no idea how to talk to their seven-year-old about their seven-year-old's friend that thinks they're trans or, you know, how to talk about Black Lives Matter and how that, that the sentence makes sense, but the organization doesn't. A am I making sense? Yeah. So I'm a small church pastor. I've got a congregation of about a hundred people. And part of the reason I love doing that is because I'm in people's lives. I know what's going on in their lives. I know those challenges you're describing that are real with their kids, with the school choices they're making. I know how these, these political moments impact them in personal ways. And I think as a pastor, you've got to keep yourself in the middle of that. You can't allow yourself to just become PR. You can't allow yourself to become a brand or marketing. You've got to set yourself in the middle of where these issues actually meet people's real lives and the complexity of them. And so, yeah, we've been celebrating, um, you know, one of the things I took away from the Roe versus Wade decision was um, God can still do things that perhaps even in my life I thought were impossible. You know, I've mm -hmm. spent my entire life we've been under the Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade. And so to see that change, well, it's a couple things. It's a reminder that our our votes matter, the decisions mm -hmm. we make and the way we interact with culture matter. But it's also a realization that God can change things that I've just assumed are the way that our culture, the way that our world is. So it's actually got me feeling pretty hopeful about the future, that, uh, that maybe there's a day going forward where some of the craziness we're experiencing right now um, God intervenes and does things we thought weren't possible. And God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And I've never seen a more crooked stick maybe than Donald J. Trump. But at the same time, like, <laughs> I think the thing that it, it's made me do, Chase, is it's made me kind of ashamed of my pessimism because I'm yeah, a very pessimistic that. guy. And to a degree, I feel like that's been a very good mechanism for me because like, Whenever I go into like a jujitsu tournament, I assume I'm going to lose every match horribly, but I prepare the exact same as if I walk in with this super positive, like walking through, oh no, nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to hold me down. No, I prepare as if embarrassment 
is going to happen. And then that almost pushes me further. But pessimism, like I never thought we would see the end of Roe v. Wade. And I was even doing the math when Donald Trump was in office. And I was like, yeah, but even if they get Amy Coney Barrett, like I'm not exactly sure about this person. And I can't really trust Kavanaugh right now. Justice Roberts is a complete tool. And and then here we are, a 5-4 decision technically to overturn. But again, that's not what we're going to be talking about today on today's show for the most part. We do need to move into the main reason why you're on the show. That's because of this book, The Five Masculine Instincts. So you sent this over to me again. Thank you so much for sending this over, but it's a guide to becoming a better man. So we're just going to dig into the book and we're just going to kind of go chronological, but we, we might come in and out depending upon what you say, because we've already covered a ton of ground in the first like five or six minutes of this thing. But the very first sentence of chapter one. So the first sentence of the book is this, this book is about masculinity, but honestly, I'm getting tired about uh, getting tired of talking about masculinity. So that begs the question from the very, very beginning, there are already a ton of these books, these Christian manhoods, how to be a better man and how to do this and how to do that books. There's a ton of them out there. Some of them are good. Most of them are garbage. So why add to the pile? Like what's unique about yours? Why start with that sentence and then proceed to write 200 pages worth of stuff? (laughs) Yeah, good question. You know, it's funny. All these Christian men's books tend to open in one of two ways. They either open with an image of an author on the side of a mountain hunting elk, trying to like prove to you their manhood, right? Like look at me in this masculine context. Or they open with a man explaining how he never fit the masculine mold and he grew up discouraged because he didn't feel like a man. Uh, I think manhood, to be honest with you, we'll see what you think about this. I think it's one of the things that if you aim directly at it, you tend to miss it and you get a kind of caricature of it. If you wake up every morning saying, how do I be a man? How do I prove myself a man? How do I become more of a man? I think you end up becoming kind of awkward. Like that that doesn't feel like true manhood to me, but it is a worthwhile pursuit. I do want to be a man. I want to be growing in my masculinity and my manhood. But I think the core work we've misplaced where that work is. It's not primarily an external focus. The core work of becoming a man is primarily an internal pursuit. How do I cultivate cultivate the kind of character, the kind of discipline, and the kind of virtue that can bear responsibility well? And the way that I try to make this point in the book is, look, if I said what our world needs is men who can serve families and marriages and communities better, like I agree with that 100%. But if you take a man and just say, be a better father, be a better husband, be a better church member, be a better community member. That responsibility alone doesn't guarantee a man that he has the character necessary to do that work well. I think that conversation about how does a man grow in character is the most important conversation about how to become a better man. Because as you grow in character and virtue, that sense of manhood that you're after and that responsibility of fulfilling manhood that you're after comes as a byproduct of that internal work of cultivating discipline and character. Where I would maybe push back on that, it's not even technically pushback. It's, I don't think enough men are asking themselves that question when they wake up in the morning, which is what, what's required of me as a man today. And I think most guys are just kind of like, just like they did in school. Like they just kind of amoeba their way through and they just kind of end up where they end up and then they lament where they've ended up and then they get bitter and then they get alone. And then, you know, a bunch of negative outcomes come from that, but it, but it stems a lot. And, and you talk about this in the first part of your book, you talk about the American psychological association, which is, I, I don't know how we can even trust that organization considering what they've done, even on the, you know, transgender kid side of things. But you quoted this from a 2019 publication of theirs, traditional masculinity marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression is on the whole harmful. Men socialized in this way are less likely to engage in healthy behaviors. So it's garbage and nonsense like that that when a dutiful, thoughtful man like myself reads 
if I'm, if I'm not that next step of discernment, I might be like, well, I guess I don't really need to discover the manhood side of what I'm supposed to do because according to this government organization, that's bad no matter what. Is, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, an Irish proverb that says, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. So in other words, there's more than one way that we can go wrong or go bad as men. Uh, culture has been trying to point out this toxic masculinity mm -hmm. challenge. I think most of it, I agree with you uh, 100%, has not been helpful. I think it's caused men to stop considering what it means to become better. I think this right. focus on external things or imagining that we could improve men by marketing campaigns and slogans has been more destructive than it's been helpful. But there's an opposite air you have to also watch out for. And that is in a kind of defensive reaction. I'm, I'm not in this camp of the American Psychological Association. But in a reaction to that, you can become... Uh, overindulgent in raw masculinity or raw masculine instincts sure, that your sure. hope and your salvation is just with wild abandon to indulge and never consider or think. So what I think men should be doing is trying to find that better way that says, how do I take the masculinity that I have seriously, this raw material of manhood, and how do I become intentional about maturing that into the best possible manhood that it could be that can serve and bear responsibility well? And the thing that concerns me the most is our culture, and too often the church as well, has robbed men of that path by which mm. they grow to become better. We focus everything on externals, on expectations, on marketing campaigns and slogans, and we never just say to a man, Here's what it looks like to become better, which is, I think, what most of us are after. The reason I think so many men aren't asking that question, because I think you do you position it well. Men aren't getting up and even thinking about it. Yeah. Well, number one, because we've set the cultural bar so low. Don't be surprised when men rise to the low bar, right? Yeah. We have zero expectation of men, or we think they're dangerous. Uh, but the other part of it is, I think a lot of men are experiencing what I call malaise. There's this great line in a novel by... Uh, uh, Percy Walker, who says that, uh, Walker Percy, excuse me, who says that uh, um, men are dead, 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 and the malaise has, has come like a fallout. And the only thing that men fear more than the bomb falling, he's writing in the atomic age of the 50s and 60s, the only thing men fear more than the bomb falling is that the bomb won't fall, and we're left to fall prey to desire. I've always loved that idea that the only thing that we fear more than catastrophe, than nuclear fallout, than war, the only thing that is more terrifying than that is that nothing would happen, that nothing in life would ever be meaningful, that we would never be challenged to do anything meaningful in life. And if there is nothing meaningful, if there is no purpose, if there is no right or wrong or moral calling or better, better manhood we can grow into, then what do we have left as men but to just fall prey to desire, to just indulge those raw, bare instincts? That's where I think a lot of men are today. There's zero expectations of them. There's no longer a sense of right or wrong or calling or purpose in life. There's no responsibility that isn't belittled by our culture. So a lot of us just settle into this malaise as the way men are, and we stop trying, we stop caring, we check out, and we just indulge desire. Or we settle, or we settle into crushing our hobbies, and so being really, really good at golf, or really, really good at jujitsu, or really, really good at lifting weights, or running, or whatever. And so I had Pastor Joby Martin on my show earlier this year, and he basically talked about, you know, hey, I like, you know, going hunting and eating meat and driving four wheel drive and and you know watching college football. He's like, none of those things make me a man. They make me awesome. They don't make me a man. And I was like, yeah, but I I 100% agree with that sentiment. The problem with most guys is they don't go that extra degree. They do kind of do a univariate analysis of their life, and they're like, well, uh, I'm really good at being a fan of this college football team. So I'm going to put all of my desire and attention and focus into that. And then it becomes part of their identity. But I'm going to kind of blow up uh, my, my interview cadence here a little bit and kind of skip to something at the end because you brought it up there. Go right ahead. The, the church has done men 
absolutely no favors. I just had Frank Turk on not that long ago. He's like, look, the church was not made for men. The modern church is not made for men. It's made for women. And then male pastors lament that there aren't more men in the church. Well, it's like your sermon content is, is basically built for the women. I'm not saying you necessarily, I've never been in your church, but the sermon content is kind of based uh, for women. It's talking way more about the lamb of God and not, you know, talking at all about line of Judah. It's way more about grace, almost nothing about truth. The lyrical content of the songs that we, we tell these men to sing and in the key, we ask them to sing it in doesn't really match them. And then they're, they're the ones sitting there basically pointed at on father's day saying, you're the problem. You don't like worship music. So you're probably not saved. You don't like volunteering at the church. So you're probably not saved. And most guys are like, F this guy, F this nonsense. I'm going to go to the shooting range. I'm going to go play basketball. I'm going to go, you know, tinker with the, the lawnmower. I'm not going to be in church. Churches spent hundreds of years repelling men. And yet they still feel like they have this ability to tell men how they've got it wrong. Have I got it wrong here? What do you think? Mm. No, well, and the flip side, the thing I often see that gets me discouraged too is when churches do try to reach men, it slips into this kind of awkward caricature, right? So it's like I call it beards, bacon, and blowing things up. That which are all that, awesome, by the way. When you <laughs> mentioned in your book, I'm like, don't you dare couch those things as negative. Well, look, I've all got some facial hair, awesome. so don't, yeah. I'm, I'm obviously in the club too. Okay. But my issue is. If you tell men that faith in Christianity is basically just about these sort of like stock, if I throw bacon on a postcard and send it to you, then you're going to come and start participating in church. I think we're contributing to that setting the bar too low for men. I think we need to be saying to men that, look, number one, creation. God made male and female and called them both good. There is something inherently good in being a man, that God has made you a man for purpose and reason and called it good. And it is a responsibility that you've been called to take up and to grow into Christ's likeness, that you becoming a better man means pursuing and becoming like Christ. And that doesn't mean denying being a man. It means forming it into something better. And that raises the bar to say to men, we need more out of you. We need you to be serving families. We need you to be serving communities, to be a husband and a father. But that work primarily is ex ex internal work. It's not these sort of just external show up and we're going to do some manly stuff. Um, so yeah, I think there's a balance here. This is another one of those areas where I think we've actually made both extreme mistakes. We have created a church environment that men don't feel comfortable, welcome, valued, challenged, or we've gone the opposite extreme where we've given them this shallow version of manhood where it's like, look, if church is just about beards, bacon, and blowing things up, like I can find that anywhere, right? Like I can have that at home. I need something in a church experience that's going to challenge me to become better, to grow, to develop better virtue and character and offer me a path to something that I can't find elsewhere. I'm definitely not finding in the world. I know that I can't find on my own. Um, so I think there's a lot of work for churches to do in, in avoiding both of those extremes. It's almost like demanding, you hear people will say this about modern churches, especially mega churches, is like they're trying so desperately to be like the culture that hates them. And mm -hmm. so it's like if people walk into your church and it feels exactly like their everyday life, you're probably not going to get that overwhelming gospel change of somebody's heart because if the music sounds the same, if it sounds like the last 10 TED Talks that they've listened to, there's nothing different about the offering that these people are getting. Yep. But I do think I have a little bit of a concern about kind of that, that middle of the road approach. And so we're still early in your book here because I've messed up my own interview, but there's another quote from right. very, very early in the book. It's this, uh -huh. the goal of this book is not to annihilate your masculine instincts or to pull them back to some safer middle ground. Now, when you mentioned the middle ground there, the one thing that's interesting about your book, Chase, is especially in the early chapters, 
I had no idea what to think of your opinion because you kept describing A and B, left and mm -hmm. right, blue and red. You were driving me insane. I was literally <laughs> writing in the margins of my book. What does this guy believe? Where are you? What does yep. he do? And really, for, for the most of the beginning of the book, you just seem to be splitting the baby and not taking a strong, definitive stance on anything, which drives a guy like me nuts because I either <laughs> want to know if you're with me or you're against me. I can't yep. deal you know, kind that. of with the lukewarmness. So kind of help me with that because you say the goal of the book is not to annihilate that, to not have middle ground, and yet you seem to be playing the middle ground for a majority of the book. Yeah, so I'm always nervous about the the middle ground approach too. That there's a safe space in the middle. I don't think that's helpful. Like uh, I think you you do at some point have to decide what you believe. I think there is another way. So I don't see it what I'm trying to do with the book as a middle ground that I'm trying to be some mediocre center to these two extremes. I think both extremes are primarily the same problem. They're focused on external characteristics of men. They're focused on external behavior of men. And they're trying to solve those problems with external conversations, with external expectations. I'm trying to suggest in the book that neither of those actually help men get better. That the way men actually grow and become better men is by, I use a little piece of advice that the Apostle Paul gives the young man, Timothy, who was pastoring in a really difficult place in Ephesus. And he tells Timothy, you'll make progress and you'll save both yourself and your hearers, which is responsibility language, right? You'll bear responsibility well for those you're leading. And the two pieces of advice Paul gives him is, if you learn to pay close attention to your life and close attention to the teaching, the doctrine, what you have in Christ. I don't think that's a middle way. I think that's an, a different way of pursuing godly manhood, which is I'm going to pay close attention to my instincts, my motives, my desires. What is causing me to do the things that I'm doing? Why am I behaving the way that I'm behaving? It's not enough to just say, here's how men are behaving wrongly, or here's how men behave well. You eventually have to push that conversation down to a deeper point to say, why is it those particular temptations, those particular challenges, those particular broken behaviors? And then you have to also keep a close watch on what you have through Christ by faith, because you need something bigger than yourself. If you make your sense of identity and manhood just an inner search, I'm going to go into myself and I'm going to find my true identity, my true self. You'll just get lost in that. You're never going to live up to those things. You're never going to become who you want to be. There's not enough inside of you. You've got to have something bigger, which is what you have through the power of the gospel. But if you allow your life to become just the pursuit of gospel knowledge, theological definitions, postures of the correct opinion, and that doesn't ever work itself into the depths of who you are as a person, it doesn't transform the inner life of who you are, then you equally end up lost. You end up kind of a, a facade, just a front of spirituality. So I want to push back a little too and say, I think I'm trying to offer something entirely different. You ask at the beginning, why did I write this book? Mm. Look, I'm not, I don't wake up every morning and say, I want to be a men's author. I want to write to men. I've got a whole congregation, all sorts of problems, things I care about and want to write about. I wrote this book because I don't think men have this approach in the conversation at all. The only conversation taking place is external. And I want to help men begin to explore what does it look like to grow internally as a man? What does it look like to begin to cultivate character? Because I'm convinced when that character begins to form within you, when you begin to cultivate inner strength and virtue, discipline internally, that sense of manhood that you're looking for, it comes as a byproduct of that work. The last chapter of the book is entitled Nothing Left to Prove. So much of manhood feels like it's about trying to prove something to myself and everyone else around me. When I think about the men that I respect most in my life, the men who I think that's the kind of manhood I want, the kind of father I want to be, the kind of husband I want to be. They're not the men who feel like they're running around having to prove it to everyone. 
doesn't mean they're weak. A lot of them are incredibly strong, disciplined. But there's something internally in them that I look at and say, I want that kind of security. I want that kind of confidence. I want that kind of strength and discipline that doesn't have to prove it or put it on display, but knows that it's there. That's the thing that I'm after that I think is not a middle ground, but an entirely different attention and pursuit. I think it's the difference between false posturing and the external manifestation of an internal work that's been done. And so yep. there's the guy that's always the loud mouth at the bar that if you know how to fight, you know that guy doesn't know how to fight. That's, right. that's why he's peacocking. That's why he's like, you know, who wants to go outside? It's the dudes that know how to fight that are like, oh, man. I really hope this guy doesn't come over here. Like I'm going to have to kill him. And it, it's yeah. that, it's that, you know, meek to response and we'll get into meekness. So I'm not going to okay. mess up my, my interview too much. But that's <laughs> kind of the other thing, you know, with centrism, independence politically or people that say, Oh, I'm a centrist. It's like, well, you just haven't really thought through the issues enough to have a fully fledged opinion. And so it's like, at some point you have to hop off the fence, but where the rubber really starts to meet the road with your book is where you bring up Shakespeare and you bring up a play that I, I had never really uh, been familiar with is as you like it. And in that play kind of defines the stages of a man and there's seven stages, but you kind of lop off the beginning and the end and you focus on the five stages in the middle. And those were sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation and apathy. So sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. And you attached each one of those to a biblical character. So you attach sarcasm to Cain, the reluctant schoolboy, adventure to Samson, the, the wandering adventurer, uh, Moses, uh, the frustration by, he was frustrated by ambition. You had David, who was desperate to protect his reputation. And then you had Abraham, who was tested by his own disengagement and apathy. That's kind of how you couch all those different things. So I guess why did you key in on those guys? Why did you key in on those characteristics? Because to be honest, this is the first Christian manhood book. And look, I've got an entire you know library of them right here to my right. No one's ever really mentioned Shakespeare unless it's kind of a cool wo a quote or, you know, uh, once more into the breach, dear friends kind of a thing. So so why did you uh, kind of go the, the Shakespearean route and then kind of turn it into a biblical lesson? Yeah. So Shakespeare is remembered as one of the great psychological writers. He's trying to deal with human nature. He's trying to expose human nature. Um, I think it's interesting that he describes these stages in a man's life that he recognized. The first and the last are birth and death. He tries to make the point that as we come into the world dependent on someone's care, we tend to leave the world dependent on someone's care. And in the middle, you get these images of from a, a schoolboy age on to what we might call retirement, a man across this these stages of his life. I recognized really early those stages at work within myself, but also the men that I pastor. And as a pastor, one of the things you recognize is that two men could commit the same sin. Two men could could um, could lie. Two men could steal. Two men could um, be addicted to pornography. But they could be doing those behaviors for different reasons or different motivations. It's not as simple as just to say, well, that's the sin I struggle with. At some point, you dig deeper and you begin to recognize there are these instincts at work within us. Lewis defined, C.S. Lewis defined an instinct as behavior as if from knowledge. So your behavior oftentimes is driven by an instinct that to you seems like common sense, that seems obvious, that seems natural, when in reality, you've probably never considered why you're doing those things or what is motivating those things. The philosopher Nietzsche said that a, an instinct is weakened when you force it to rationalize itself. So in other words, when you begin to ask tough questions about why do I do the things that I do? Why do I behave the way that I behave? You lose the instinct loses some of its power to drive you and control you. 
and through that perspective, you become the master of those instincts instead of being mastered by them. So Shakespeare for me was a tool of being able to help men ask deeper questions about what is currently motivating my behavior. And I think it's always important to point out the five instincts that I cover in the book. These are not the five expectations of men that you have to have these to qualify as a man, nor are these the five sins of men that, you know, watch out for those things. Uh, certainly things like adventure and ambition and reputation. I mean, these are good things. All of them, I think, are at worst neutral, but I think all of them have a positive part to them. But when they become driving, controlling forces in your life that you have no perspective on, when they're driving behavior which, without your awareness of how they're leading to your behavior, then I think the biblical stories help us recognize that even those good things can become ultimate things, can become things that lead towards destruction and a kind of blind indulgence that makes us weaker and more vulnerable because of it. Yeah, and it's less of a, well, at least this was my perception when I was reading it, it's less of a checklist and more of a, where are you at? stage-wise? Like, are you in yep. this stage of life or are you in that stage of life? Now, I do want to talk about something in the first chapter where you go into this, and that's Cain and sarcasm, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because you, you yep. also talk about meekness in that chapter, and that was like one of my favorite parts of the entire book. But I've got to be honest, as I was reading the first part of the Cain chapter, I really didn't get your point. Uh, or that, or maybe I just disagreed with it. Um, and it just didn't really kind of go through my brain. I tell people all the time, I don't have the intellect to lightly toast a piece of bread. So it's like, sometimes I might just miss it. But the chapter seemed to me like someone who is bad at sarcasm, castigating it as improper. It's kind of like people that suck at comedy. They love to point at comedians and tell them that their stuff isn't funny. And so it's like, I mean, there was one quote from the book. It was like, sarcasm is usually a sign of immaturity. And when threatened, it is an instinct to avoid responsibility. And there are more quotes like that throughout that section. But, you know, there are people that are really good at sarcasm and comedy and razzing and being quick witted and all those different things. And they're just doing it because like it's an overflow of their personality. Now there are people that do those things because they're they're insecure or they're that's kind of their way of being a bully and you know there there are different things like that but ultimately I didn't I guess I didn't really get why that was kind of the kicking off point of of your five uh you know masculine instincts uh, going into sarcasm it just didn't really land with me so so help me a little bit Sure I'll keep it quick so all of these instincts I say can be good things it'll right. make you happy to know I think the old testament prophets often use sarcasm as a tool to draw out truth I think Jesus at times is sarcastic with his critics so mm -hmm. I'm certainly not hostile to sarcasm in any way by the way it is fine to have a sarcastic joke and laugh. I'm not calling out any <laughs> right. sarcasm in your life. But I think you and I both also know that there is a kind of man who has a kind of perpetual immaturity that can't take anything seriously, that makes everything a joke as a way of avoiding having to be serious. And I use Cain's story because God comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain about how Cain needs to grow and overcome the challenge of sin before it conquers him. Cain doesn't respond to that conversation, rises up and murders his brother out of frustration and bitterness. And then when God comes back to him a second time, he says, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says to him, am I my brother's keeper? Hmm. There's a kind of sarcasm at work within Cain that's just a cheap veneer for covering up his contempt. And it's that contempt and the sarcasm, the cleverness that he imagines with which he ha shows that contempt to God that keeps him from recognizing the divine lesson, the way in which God is trying to lead him to become better. So I use the first chapter just to say, be careful that in your making everything a joke and everything being sarcastic and everything being dumb and not worth your time, you're not actually missing some of the opportunities that God is using to grow you and challenge you and lead you down a path of growth and improvement. Okay, fair enough. I appreciate you going a little bit further into that. But again, like, I, like I've teed up now three times, you talked about meekness in this chapter and I've seen 
You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you wait on the meekness thing because I want to make another point (laughs) because I feel like meekness, Chase, started to change inside Christendom as soon as Jordan Peterson started talking about it. And so you actually quote Jordan Peterson at the beginning of one of your chapters. I don't even think it was that chapter, but his influence as a non-Christian, because he's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, no matter what category you look at it as, this is a non-Christian that is having a deeply profound and positive impact on Christendom, at least in my opinion. And he started talking about meekness kind of being, you know, a, a knight that has a sword, but leaves it sheathed, right? This tremendous amount of power under control. So talk to me a little bit about Jordan Peterson and kind of your understanding of, of his impact that we're having on the church. And then we'll finally get to talking about meekness specifically. Yeah, happy to do it. So I've written on my blog a couple times about Peterson's work. I actually have found it to be incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the work he's doing, as you put it, has been a, a huge benefit to the church, to men in the church in particular. Uh, I think where he and I probably, when, when, which we go a long ways together, uh, where we probably have some sort of a difference is he has more of a classical approach to virtue, which is that virtue and character are a habit that we take. We begin to practice as a way of forming in our life. That's the traditional, like how Plato would have taught character formation as well, too. Uh, I think as a Christian, there's a way in which character can be infused into your life through the gospel, that the gospel narrative itself has a kind of power that so radically changes the way you see the world in yourself that it creates within you some of that character and virtue. Uh, I don't think Peterson quite gets to that point. I think he sees the value of Christian teaching as a tool that you can use to start practicing that that character and virtue, where I think if you really begin to submit your life to Christ and the narrative, the truth of the gospel, it actually infuses some of that character and virtue into your life as well. So yeah, I think like you, and largely I find Peterson's work to be immensely helpful and, and fascinating. And you know, he's bringing a psychological read mm-hmm. and he'll straight up say that when he's talking about the Bible, he's reading it as a psychologist and trying to look for the psychological themes. I tend to focus on the narrative themes as a writer, how I think the stories are functioning. But yeah, he's been insightful and so many times, even in my own reading of scripture as well. I think his intellect has gotten him close to God, but also I think intellect will be one of his stumbling blocks because uh, again, I was just talking this morning with a guy who's a young earth guy. And, and for me personally, like I think it's silly to, to think that God would create uh, an old appearing earth and then give us the tools by which to define using physics or biology or, or whatever to say how old the earth is only to trick us to be like, ah, it's not really that old. It's only this old. And so I feel like when you start getting bogged down in some of the scientific arguments, that's where I think Jordan Peterson is thinking, okay, this has value because of what it does about truth, but I don't know that I can believe in it because of all these other things, you know, but anyway, it'll be interesting to see kind of how he, how he develops moving forward. But again, you talk about meekness, I've teed it up now four times or five times in this podcast. So what do we get wrong in modernity as Christians or as secular people about meekness? Yeah, so meekness comes up in this Cain chapter, and what strikes me about Cain and his immaturity is his inability to control his reactions. God rejects his sacrifice and comes down and gives him an opportunity to understand why his sacrifice was rejected. But instead, what Cain does is he impulsively reacts and murders his brother. It's as if he cannot stomach having been challenged or judged in some way. And his natural impulse is to react, to respond. You described this earlier by a guy in a bar who's, you know, the one talking all the time and everybody Mm -hmm. recognizes that's not a sign of his strength. It's a sign of his insecurity. It's a sign of his weakness. Mm -hmm. I think there is often this need to react, to put things on display, to show. 
is often not a sign of strength, but a sign of, of weakness. And meekness is not a word that any of us would claim for ourselves. Uh, I sort of will say, you know, what politician has ever put on their yard sign, I'm, vote for me, I'm a, a meek candidate, right? Mm-hmm. We would look at that and think that's the last thing I want in a person. But it's because we've misunderstood what meekness actually is. We think of it as timidity or weakness. When in reality, the, the Greek writers, even before the, the New Testament, were using the word meekness to describe war horses. Uh, my wife and I have a couple of horses. I've got a big quarter horse. And uh, these war horses that they would train, the goal was you couldn't break their spirit entirely. You know, if you made them so passive and so domesticated, uh, they would become useless in battle. You needed a horse who was willing to charge cannon fire and to, to jump over lines of enemies with spears. You need a kind the, those wild characteristics of that horse need to still be there. But to be a, a horse that the Greeks would have called meek, a battle horse, you needed to also have the discipline necessary that a rider with the gesture of a knee in its side can cut that horse in an entirely new direction. If you've ever been around horses, it's always amazed me, an animal of that power and strength when they're well-trained and disciplined, can almost anticipate what the rider is asking. They can sense that from the subtlest gestures of you as a rider. One of the other images I like to use for meekness, so the horse is all of the wildness, all of the strength of a wild horse, but brought into the discipline of control. The other one that I like to use is a boxer. If you watch boxing or a UFC fight, Hmm. we don't just measure the strength of the fighter by their ability to throw a punch. We also will measure their strength by the ability to take one, to absorb one. You know, I watch a guy get hit round after round and I think that's a tough guy. You know, it's not just his ability to throw the punch. That's a good way of thinking about meekness, that meekness is able to absorb a blow and not out of immaturity react out of control, but instead to be able to absorb that blow, to consider the right response if a response is necessary and to measure out that response in a controlled way. That is actually a mark of strength. And it's the thing that we're being called to when it says blessed are the meek, or when Moses is described as the meekest man on earth. Not weakness, not timidity, but a kind of inner strength, a kind of character that can look out at the world that can be wronged by somebody, that can be attacked by somebody, and consider in a moment, what is the right way to respond to this? Is this even worth responding to? Does it necessitate a response? Is there something that I could actually learn? Like maybe God is using this towards something better in me. That's a better image of meekness. And I think it's actually a characteristic of strength. Yeah. It's like, it's having tremendous strength under voluntary control. Uh, you, you mentioned a UFC f- fight. So there was a story, uh, Cowboy Cerrone, who's one of the most famous and uh, most well-liked uh, fighters of all time. He's coming towards the end of his career, but this was years ago. Um, I think he may have accidentally cut someone off in traffic and then he's, you know, pulls over and, you know, is walking into the store or whatever. And this guy doesn't know who Cowboy Cerrone is, gets out, and doesn't even say anything, just punches him in the face. He punches Cowboy Cerrone in the face. And as the story goes, and I have no reason to believe that this didn't happen, Cowboy said, that was your free one. You will not get another. And just stared at him. And you want to talk about meekness. This is Cowboy Cerrone, one of the most dangerous human beings to ever live. And he just said... That by the way, he's probably also angry. Like you don't get punched in the face by a stranger in traffic. Like it's not that he is... What he has cultivated is not stoic emotionlessness that somehow he just is above it all no no no. he feels the anger but there's enough discipline in his inner life to not have to react out of anger but to make a decision how he will respond in that moment when he didn't in that moment need to beat that guy up to prove something to his father or prove something to that girlfriend that spurned him whenever they were in college he didn't have any of that like misguided angst that manly angst to where it was just like 
bro, it's going to be a, it's basically going to be a horrible rest of your day. And you should just know by my countenance. Cause I just ate that punch and I'm still here, but you don't get another one. So I, I really, really like that story. I think that kind of makes your point. So moving on to the chapter about Samson and adventure, I want to say this, this quick quote here, maybe the meaninglessness and boredom are exactly what real adventures are meant to feel like. So I know it sounds like I may be disagreeing with you a lot, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand your point of view because I feel like you and I are kind of wired a little bit differently mentally. And uh, it seems like you're advocating for men to just kind of accept the mundane nature of much of their lives. And I think that leads, uh, that mundane nature really leads a lot of men directly into despair. Um, there are men that I know very, very well personally that have worked kind of the same job for a very, very long time. They never took vacations. They never took risks. They never got outside their box. And so, you know, even reading Wild at Heart by my man, John Eldridge, like that's not going to be enough to get them out of the recliner. But then it leads to this depression. It leads to them not having a foxhole of guys around them that can really support them. And so it's like, it was, it seemed like you were advocating for men to look at the the mundane nature of their life and be like, that's probably okay. Whereas I'm like, that's probably not. It's probably going to lead to some negative outcomes. So go. Yep. So this is why it's so important to talk about more than one instinct. And it's why it's important that we started the conversation by saying you have to learn to pay attention to your life and your instincts and what's motivating your behavior. Because in some ways, the opposite of this adventure instinct is the apathy one at the end. There is a kind of man who is so apathetic and so disengaged and so risk averse that his faith withers and dies, that he stops living a life of faith. And we need to come along. In that story of Abraham at the end, God wakes him up by challenging him to make a, an unbelievable sacrifice as a way of pulling him back into what you could call this adventurous narrative, that life has stakes and consequences and requires movement. There is a certain kind of man that needs to be woken up to that narrative of life, that you need to take risks. Your faith needs to be active. When I write specifically about Samson and this instinct of adventure, there's another kind of man who is so obsessed with adventure that believes by leaving home and place and tradition and all of the things holding them back that they can go and find their better identity and their true self in some sort of epic quest. Oftentimes what happens is you weaken your commitment to place, to spouse, to children, and through that process, you don't end up enlightened and actualized and discerning. You become less discerning. That's what happens in Samson's story. Samson is at a time in Israel's history where there's nothing great happening. There's no army. There's no temple. There's no kingdom or power. Um, he it raised as a Nazarite, no cutting your hair, no touching corpse, no drinking wine. He didn't pick that for himself. An angel gave that restriction to his mother. So he's growing up in kind of a backwards place at a low point in Israel's history with this weird family tradition. It's no surprise that he finds himself fascinated with Philistia, all these great Philistine cities with wealth. They're having these technological innovations in metal at the time from bronze into iron. And he becomes obsessed. And story after story, Samson goes down to Philistia in these little adventure stories. He takes these huge risks. The spirit empowers him with this miraculous strength to deliver himself. And through those stories, does Samson become more self-actualized, more discerning? Does he sense his truer identity and purpose? It's the exact opposite. He loses more and more of who he actually is. He loses that sense of discernment and he becomes dull. He ends up taking those divine experiences of strength and literally at one point he's gambling it away as a pun at a drunken feast with Philistines, right? And he ends up with his head shaved and his eyes gouged out and chained to a wall in, in one of these Philistine dungeons. It doesn't lead to self-actualization. So what I think we need as men 
it's not don't ever go on an adventure. Don't ever do anything adventurous. Don't think of your life as having adventurous stakes and meaning. Certainly that's fine. But don't allow your desperation for the adventure you're imagining to dull you and make you less discerning of the things God is at work doing in your life when you imagine them boring or less than adventurous. And sometimes that is a job. Sometimes that's a relationship that maybe hasn't worked itself out like you imagined, or it's raising kids. Man, there's so much monotony. I've got two young ones myself. Like That doesn't always feel adventurous. Mm. But the challenge is, how do you discern the fact that God is doing something in those places? And how do you become wiser in discerning that work instead of constantly pursuing your own adventure and actually losing what God is at work doing in that place right now? Well, something that struck me as you were talking, Chase, is, uh, you know, God has you where he has you for a reason, but some guys, they think that so that they don't have to go and do something else, that they don't have to spark yeah. themselves and, and motivate themselves. They're like, oh, well, God just has me here. It's like, does he? And so like when people like, you know, uh, during Pride Month with all the, you know, companies changing their logos to rainbow or during the vaccine mandates during all the COVID nonsense, a lot of people reached out to me, you know, a podcast host to say, hey, should I quit my job? And it's like, bro, I have no freaking idea whether or not you should do that. I don't know. See, those are, those are symptoms of we have robbed men of the ability to look in and understand their decisions. And when we say things like adventure, good or bad, it's not that simple. Instincts are never that simple. Why we behave the way we do is never that simple. We as men have got to get better at saying, what is actually motivating my behavior? What is motivating the things I'm feeling right now? And have the discipline necessary to recognize are those things good or bad in the way that they're leading me to behave? If adventure is causing you to weaken your commitments to marriage and family and place and tradition and faith, it's destructive. Right. But if you are so risk averse that you're sitting around and retreating into little fantasies of video games and mm. pornography and you're refusing to take risks in your life, by the way, you're going to ruin those same relationships because of it. Right. You need to wake up to life does require risk and faith. And that faith has to be active and alive and often driving you into new places. So yeah. it's not enough to say good or bad. That's the thing, probably the thing that bothered you with the book, feeling like middle ground. Sometimes I refuse to just say, this is good, this is bad, because it's really about you as an individual man recognizing which of these instincts are driving my behavior and are they leading me towards Christ-likeness or are they costing me those very things? One of these days, I hope to be sitting down with you at a dinner where we have like a five-course meal and I'm going to force you to tell me at each step of the way whether you like what you just <laughs> ate or whether you didn't like what you just uh, But But one thing I, I think that would be important for a lot of men listening to this is if you're thinking about making that change or going on that adventure or doing that thing, you need to stop and ask God, first of all, like, is this what you have for me? But also stop and recognize and accept your wiring to a degree. Because it's so easy to start a podcast these days. So everyone's doing it. And whenever people ask me for advice on starting a podcast, my first bit of advice is don't. Don't start a podcast. I was like, unless you expect are going to put out one episode a week for three years before you get more than a dozen listeners, like you, you don't want to do that. It's easy. And so you think you should, but some guys have no talent for it. They have no skill set for being interesting. Like I love what Dennis Prager says is he's like, if you think you should be in radio, sit in a room for three hours and talk. And if you get bored, then just understand that everybody on the other side of the microphone is bored as well. If you can't make yourself interesting to yourself, you can't make yourself interesting to somebody else. So I think there's a little bit of, you know, that internal dialogue that you need to have. Yes, yeah, self-knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And so you, you talked about you know, the apathy chapter. So let's go and skip to that with, with Abraham, because okay. there was a very interesting quote that 
Well, it was a brutal quote. And I, I just, I loved it because it kind of gives us a sense of where we're at and gives us maybe some scaffolding by which to, to address some things societally. So let me read the quote here. Men produce destruction by more than violence. To warn only of man's aggression is to imply that passivity makes him safe and virtuous. Nothing could be further from the truth. As, Ag- as Agatha Christie warned, a weak man in a corner is more dangerous than a strong man. I'm convinced that disengagement and apathy produce more destruction in the lives of men than aggression and violence. One captures most of the national headlines, but it is the other that lays waste to homes and families all over the nation. Men must be warned of the danger of both ditches. So when I read that quote, I was reminded of a of a debate that I did here recently with a guy named Shane Claiborne. He's a uh, anti gun, anti violence, you know, pacifist kind of hippie Christian guy. And I was, you know, on the other side of like pro Second Amendment, pro self defense, and all that. And this is a debate with a professional activist. And I don't, I've talked about guns on two of my podcasts out of the 300 plus podcasts that I've done. So it was a little bit of a mismatch, but I just kind of went in there and smashed him because he kept wanting to talk about the instrument of evil and not the evil that's in a man's heart. And you talked about the national headlines. We see that young man with misplaced anger and misplaced angst, and he takes out his aggression on 19 school children in Uvalde, Texas, and two teachers, you know, something like that. But then we don't talk about the cultural uh, manifestations that allowed for that. Like, how did this kid fall through the cracks in school, in his family? How did he have no no church life? How did he get put on these SSRIs that all these school shooters seem to be on? And so I think you start peeling back the layers of the onion just by by phrasing things the way that you do on that side of the chapter. Does, it, does that kind of make sense? Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I come back to, I mean, this is something we keep returning to as well, is that these external conversations are not enough to fix the problem. You can't run a marketing campaign or a slogan or a protest and it actually change a man's soul. At some point, he has to ask personal questions about why do I behave the way that I do? And at some point he has to find something, I believe through Christ and the power of the gospel, that's bigger than himself to transform and change his heart towards something better. And it's very easy for us to set the debate up constantly as how do we fix the problem? How do we fix men? What do we take away from them? What do we put in its place? What traits need to be removed? And how do we uh, leverage social campaigns to, to push them in a new direction? But I don't think it changes men. We have a sin problem and that sin problem we have to be aware of and we have to submit it to Christ and let the power of the gospel transform us and draw us towards greater Christ-likeness. And until we have that conversation about the inner life of men, we're not going to solve these societal problems that we're trying to with marketing campaigns. I would agree. And, and that's what I wanted to get to. And that was the first suggestion I made in the show is I was like, we need to spread the gospel because how many gospel-believing, biblically-believing Christians are going in shooting up elementary schools? The answer is zero, right? Yep. And so there was a quote from earlier in your book that I kind of feel like sums up the entire, you know, uh, the, I really, the entire philosophy of the, ma- the five masculine instincts. And it's this, our goal is not just to be men, but to be men becoming more like Christ. You just said it, Chase. He is our aim. If there is a hero in the story, it is him alone. There is no biblical manhood that does not ultimately lift our eyes towards him. That pursuit unites us and binds us with those men and women of scripture. We are all aiming at Christ-likeness. That is the whole reason for writing this entire book, in my opinion. But here's the thing that we've gotten to in culture, Chase, at least this is what I've seen, is we're supposed to read the Bible as if it's about us. I brought this up a bunch, but Matt Chandler was invited years ago to go to Stephen Furtick's church, and he basically went in there and burned the place down because his entire 
sermon was anti everything that Stephen Furtick would talk about, right? Because he was screamed at this congregation and said, if you read the story of David and Goliath, you're not David. That story is not about you. The Bible is not about you, right? God is not about you. He is for you, but he is not about you. He's about himself and his glory. But we've got that so backwards because of this kind of new agey, you know, self-help Christianity movement, which again, kind of has downstream consequences on manhood. So just flow a little bit on how the gospel should be the focus and whether secular or Christian, we don't seem to be focusing on that alone. Yep. The first thing that the Bible does, and the reason I went with Old Testament characters is the goal of the Bible is to expose you, not to affirm you. Its job is not there to tell you you're good or to tell you that the things you want are good or to tell you just do these things and your life will go well. It's there to show you and expose the way that your life is geared and headed towards destruction. That's the consistent witness across all that five sounds of so these characters. Mean. That sounds so judgmental, Chase. Why now, are you being does, so mean? It does until you recognize that there's a kind of grace in that. Yep. That if I am allowed to wallow in my own self-attempts, which by the way are not fixing men's problems, right? there's not hope in that. If, if the only thing that I have hope in is what I'm able to construct myself. Look, I know myself well enough to know that myself is usually what gets in the way of something better in my life. Right. Like if, if my hope is in me and my abilities, like great, one day that's good. And then the next day it feels terrible. Like I'm not consistently headed towards something good in my own strength. So the gospel's willingness to expose us and show us that our self is not enough is actually a kind of grace because it allows us to start looking beyond ourself. We live in a world that's all about self-esteem and self-actualization and self-affirmation, self-expression. The Bible practices a form of what I, the way I define humility of self-suspicion. I learned to recognize my first instinct, my first thought, my first opinion may not always be right, but I'm not left alone. I have the revelation of God through Jesus Christ to help challenge me and draw me towards something better than myself. Now, the key to that is you have to have the right Jesus and you have to have the kind of Jesus that you give permission to challenge you, to discipline you and to grow you. If the way you're reading the Bible and the gospels is Jesus always saying to you what you want to hear, then you're missing the point of what Jesus is doing. Jesus right. says at one point, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Um, Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, had this idea that the opposite of faith is not doubt. That's how we usually frame it. You either have faith or you're doubting. Kierkegaard said the opposite of faith is offense. That when you encounter the real Jesus, you either are offended by him because of the things he's pointing out, the things he's saying, the things he's asking of you, or through that process, you're drawn to a greater faith. You expose yourself and you begin to see something better in Christ. So I think as men, you should be very careful. The way you're reading scripture should be challenging you, should be exposing you, and it should be challenging you into something better through Christ. And if the way you're reading the Bible is always, it's affirming me and it's making me feel better about myself, it's not just that you're misreading the Bible, you're actually missing the real power, the real grace of what it has to offer, which is something more than just you. Yeah, you're getting gospel light. And so it's like the same thing. It's like, you should not leave church feeling really, really good about yourself. Like, and again, you can go to the extreme other side of that, that yeah, issue. There are times, like, it's right. not, you know, at times we get encouraged, right. but there should fundamentally beneath that be 
there's something bigger and better than myself. I want, at the end of the day, I want my writing to be an invitation into a bigger world. I don't want it to be an invitation into just more of myself and my own plans and my own ideas. I want to recognize that God is doing something larger than I could do on my own, that there's something, there is a narrative and there's a trajectory to history by God's revelation that is bigger and more profound than my own dreams, my own visions for myself. And that by his grace, I'm invited into that, not to just take, but to submit myself to him and become a participant in what he's doing. Um, that's how we begin to actually change who we are. Absolutely. And and uh, we'll have one more question. So that kind of leaves the five masculine instincts. Uh, again, thank you for sending that my way, guys. That will be in the show notes so that you can check it out. But to kind of wrap up and put a bow on what we're talking about today, I don't believe that you talked about this. If you did, I, I've forgotten. But one thing that I'm obsessed with and that a lot of people in my audiences are obsessed with is rites of passage for young boys. Because in our modern culture, we don't do that. And so what you end up getting is a lot of boys that self-actualize. They self-define when they become a man. The first time they have sex, first time they buy their own vehicle, when they move away to college, when they do this or when they do that, they get to self-actualize because dad is either not there or crappy. Um, society doesn't tell them that. Their, their church doesn't tell them that because there's some random sects of different religions that kind of tell you when you're uh, when you're a man and those types of things. And culture looks at these rites of passage. You know, why would you want a kid to be welcomed into manhood? Because manhood is inherently toxic, you crazy, crazy bigot. Like that's kind of where, where it's gone. But I want young boys to know, I want them to go on a journey where they know, hey, this is what's expected of you as a man. Here are the things about you personally that I think will be some of your biggest uh, you know, missteps that you're going to have in your life, some things that you're going to have to be careful about. Here's the responsibility that we're going to put on you now at this age, but we don't see that anywhere. Why not? Yeah. Well, I love the way you're talking about it because I'm a father. I've got a son and a daughter. My son's eight. Uh, my daughter's five. I'm already thinking about and I'm seeing like these opportunities to give my son greater responsibility and to talk about how you take on that responsibility. And I think the way you framed it's really a helpful and a good one. There are cultures that practice rites of passage as a kind of I prove myself, right. I do some feat of strength or endurance by which I've now been accepted into manhood. One of the things, and I do write about this a little bit in the Cain chapter, one of the things that struck me is that the Hebrew culture, when you go back and read the Bible, there doesn't seem to be an intentional rite of passage like that that they practiced. Maybe they did, it's just not recorded in scripture, mm -hmm. but there's no like, hold on to the glowing embers as long as you can, or <laughs> right. go out into the desert and survive 40 days. Or, uh, mm -hmm. But there is within the Jewish practice, this moment of recognition in which a boy becomes a man. The Jewish faith calls it the bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah literally means, usually happens at age 13. It literally means the son of the commandment. And there's a moment in the bar mitzvah celebration where the father of the son gets up and prays, thank you, God, that I am no longer punishable for this boy's sins. And then the boy marks that transitioning into manhood by reading from the Torah, by reading from the, the, the scrolls in Hebrew. The reason that it's a celebration of son of the commandment is literally what the bar mitzvah notes is. The son has gone from being the res moral responsibility of his father to now bearing moral responsibility for himself. What strikes me about that is what the Jewish faith is marking is your rite of passage into manhood is not one of proving yourself a man, but rather one of taking up the responsibility of being a man, that you are now taking moral responsibility for your decisions, for your behavior and for your pursuit of God. I think that's a really powerful way of thinking about what it means to become a man. It doesn't just mean I've gone out and proved it. Look, I'm strong enough to be one. It means as of today, 
I am taking the responsibility upon myself to grow in my manhood, to become a son of the commandment, to bear moral responsibility for the right and wrong of my life. That manhood is at the end of the day, the taking up of responsibility. I think it's a really powerful way of thinking of that rite of passage. And I also think that we we should focus on both. We should focus on proving it and also taking responsibility because you can train your you know 16 year old kid to be really physically, uh, to be an endurer. But uh, one of the best examples, and, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll wind to a close. And I don't even remember the context of this, but it was just, a, um, a father and his brother, they each had sons that were like the same age. So they were like 13, 14 years old. And what they had done for the months and years leading up to the event that I'm about to describe is they were teaching their sons survivalist stuff, like, you know, how to create a fire and how to make shelter and how to look for food and, you know, forge for water and all those different things. And so then what they did is, you know, father and son and father and son, right? You know, uncles, cousins, the whole deal. They walk up the mountain. And then when they get to the top of the mountain, the whatever mountain they were climbing, the fathers say, all right, boys, y'all are staying up here for the night or, you know, all the rest of the evening and night. And we'll see you in the morning back down at base camp. And they walked off with all the supplies, right? You know, for the most part, like they left him with just enough to where they could, you know, take care of themselves for the rest of the evening. Now, if that was all that it would be, that's the prove it part. The, the kids make it down. They did get eaten by a bear or a mountain lion or, you know, fall off a cliff or something like that. There, they've proved it. But when the young men got to the bottom of the mountain, each father took their respect. like, I'm getting choked up because I've got like a two-year-old and a, and a three-month-old right now. They took their sons to the side and they said, look, here are the best things about you as a person. Here's the great things about your wiring. Here's the things that you're going to struggle with. But this is so important. It's not just about proving what you did on top of the mountain. Now we're back down here. Now we're in regular life. I need to see you take up that mantle and that responsibility as a man. And man, like that's that's the model to a degree. And I want that to be expanded out to where it's accessible for fathers all over the place, you know? Yeah. And part of the power of that is saying to a young boy, it is possible. And I think that's the thing our culture has robbed them of is we just think so many think it's a joke, right? The responsibility is yep. a joke. Well, this is C.S. Lewis's in the abolition of man, right? He says, we laugh, we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We build mm-hmm. or we gild the, the the horses and then send them out to be fruitful, right? We, we want to laugh at morality and right and wrong and the sense of purpose and meaning. And then we're shocked when kids grow up and behave like there's no right or wrong, behave like there's no nothing worth living for when there is no meaning, when they commit violent acts. And we ask, how is that possible? Well, at some point, we have to start saying to our children as they're growing up, it's possible. It's possible to be a person of character and that it matters and that there is right and wrong and there is good and evil and that the way in which you grow into that manhood matters for your family and for our communities. And so you have to take that responsibility. So yeah, saying there's a responsibility, but I like the way you put it also, it is possible to do it. Do not lose hope in that possibility. And guys, you know, we equip men to push back darkness here at this ministry. One of the ways that you push back against postmodernism is just showing your kids that there is a difference between truth and untruth. There is a difference between truth and falsehood, between what's right and what's wrong. And there is a moral law. And we didn't just make up that moral law because, you know, millions and millions of years ago, we decided as chimps that this was better than that, that there was a moral law given to us by a moral law giver. But Chase, we've gone everywhere in this conversation. I really appreciate you letting me kind of dig in to some of the things that are kind of undergirding a lot of things that you said in the book. But as of right now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? 
No, thank you so much. I hope you guys read the book. I hope uh, I hope I drew enough lines for you. Let me know when you want to do the five-hour dinner, and I'm happy to answer all those questions. I, at the end of the day, there's a lot more views and opinions I have about masculinity than are in the book. This isn't an exhaustive, here's everything, I think. But it is where I think we should start as men and where I hope all men are willing to take that next step, paying close attention to your inner life, paying attention to what you have in Christ. And so, yeah, tons. If anybody's interested in more information, if you want to try to pin me on a question too, shoot me an email. Uh, you can do that at the website, The Five Masculine Instinct. There's a little online assessment there that guys can take too, just to start thinking about which of these instincts might be at work within your life. And uh, yeah, like I said, reach out to me. I love hearing from people. If you've got questions, opinions, pushback, uh, I'm not afraid of it. Happy to talk about it. All right. All that will be in the show notes, you guys. Chase Replogle, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Chase Rep Logal. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got three links for you today. One, I've got a link to where you can go buy the Five Masculine Instincts. I've got a link to the Five Masculine Instincts website. That's where he talked about that little test, a uh, little survey thing that you can take. And then also a link to his personal website. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah